0: Section 9 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Anonymously translated. Section 9. In less than a year, I had exhausted La Tribu's scanty library, and was unhappy for want of further amusement. My reading, though frequently bad, had worn off my childish follies, and brought back my heart to nobler sentiments than my condition had inspired. Meantime, disgusted with all within my reach, And thinking everything charming that was out of it, my present situation appeared extremely miserable. My passions began to acquire strength, I felt their influence, without knowing whither they would conduct me. I sometimes indeed thought of my former follies, but sought no further. At this time, my imagination took a turn which helped to calm my increasing emotions. It was to contemplate those situations in the books I had read which produced the most striking effect on my mind, to recall, combine, and apply them to myself in such a manner as to become one of the personages my recollection presented and be continually in those fancied circumstances which were most agreeable to my inclinations. In a word, by contriving to place myself in these fictitious situations, the idea of my real one was in a great measure obliterated. This fondness for imaginary objects, and the facility with which i could gain possession of them completed my disgust for everything around me and fixed that inclination for solitude which has ever since been predominant we shall have more than once occasion to remark the effects of a disposition misanthropic and melancholy in appearance but which proceed, in fact, from a heart too affectionate, too ardent, which, for want of similar dispositions, is constrained to content itself with nonentities, and be satisfied with fiction. It is sufficient at present to have traced the origin of a propensity which has modified my passions, set bounds to each and by giving too much ardour to my wishes, has ever rendered me too indolent to obtain them. Thus I attained my sixteenth year, uneasy, discontented with myself and everything that surrounded me, displeased with my occupation, without enjoying the pleasures common to my age weeping without a cause, sighing I knew not why, and fond of my chimerical ideas for want of more valuable realities. Every Sunday, after sermon-time, my companions came to fetch me out, wishing me to partake of their diversions. I would willingly have been excused, but when once engaged in amusement I was more animated and enterprising than any of them. It was equally difficult to engage or restrain me. Indeed, this was ever a leading tray in my character. In our country walks I was ever foremost and never thought of returning till reminded by some of my companions i was twice obliged to be from my masters the whole night the city gates having been shut before i could reach them the reader may imagine what treatment this procured me the following mornings but i was promised such a reception for the third that i made a firm resolution never to expose myself to the danger of it notwithstanding my determination i repeated this dreaded transgression my vigilance having been rendered useless by a cursed captain named monsieur minutoli who went on guard always shut the gate he had charge of an hour before the usual time i was returning home with my two companions and had got within half a league of the city when i heard them beat the tattoo i redouble my pace i run with the utmost speed i approach the bridge see the soldiers already at their posts I call out to them in a suffocated voice. It is too late. I am twenty paces from the guard, the first bridge is already drawn up, and I tremble to see those terrible horns advanced in the air, which announce the fatal and inevitable destiny, which from this moment began to pursue me. I threw myself on the glacis in a transport of despair, while my companions, who only laughed at the accident, immediately determined what to do. My resolution, though different from theirs, was equally sudden. On the spot I swore never to return to my master's, and the next morning When my companions entered the city, I bade them an eternal adieu, conjuring them at the same time to inform my cousin Bernard of my resolution, and the place where he might see me for the last time. From the commencement of my apprenticeship I had seldom seen him. At first, indeed, we saw each other on Sundays. But each acquiring different habits our meetings were less frequent i am persuaded his mother contributed greatly towards this change he was to consider himself as a person of consequence i was a pitiful apprentice notwithstanding our relationship equality no longer subsisted between us and it was degrading himself to frequent my company. As he had a natural good heart, his mother's lessons did not take an immediate effect, and for some time he continued to visit me. Having learned my resolution, he hastened to the spot I had appointed, not, however, to dissuade me from it but to render my flight agreeable by some trifling presents, as my own resources would not have carried me far he gave me among other things a small sword which i was very proud of and took with me as far as turin where absolute want constrained me to dispose of it The more I reflect on his behaviour at this critical moment, the more I am persuaded he followed the instructions of his mother, and perhaps his father likewise, for had he been left to his own feelings, he would have endeavoured to retain, or have been tempted to accompany me. On the contrary, he encouraged the design and when he saw me resolutely determined to pursue it, without seeming much affected, left me to my fate. We never saw or wrote to each other from that time. I cannot but regret this loss, for his heart was essentially good, and we seemed formed for a more lasting friendship before I abandon myself to the fatality of my destiny, let me contemplate for a moment the prospect that awaited me had I fallen into the hands of a better master. Nothing could have been more agreeable to my disposition, or more likely to confer happiness, than the peaceful condition of a good artificer in so respectable a line as engravers are considered at Geneva. I could have obtained an easy subsistence, if not a fortune. This would have bounded my ambition. I should have had means to indulge in moderate pleasures, and should have continued in my natural sphere, without meeting with any temptation to go beyond it having an imagination sufficiently fertile to embellish with its chimeras every situation and powerful enough to transport me from one to another it was immaterial in which i was fixed that was best adapted to me which requiring the least care or exertion left the mind most at liberty and this happiness I should have enjoyed. In my native country, in the bosom of my religion, family and friends, I should have passed a calm and peaceful life, in the uniformity of a pleasing occupation, and among connections dear to my heart. I should have been a good Christian, a good citizen, a good friend a good man. I should have relished my condition, perhaps have been an honour to it, and after having passed a life of happy obscurity, surrounded by my family, I should have died at peace. Soon it may be forgotten, but while remembered it would have been with tenderness and regret instead of this what a picture am i about to draw alas why should i anticipate the miseries i have endured the reader will have but too much of the melancholy subject end of section 9 recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey Section 10 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 by Jean Jacques Rousseau. Anonymously translated. Section 10. Volume 2 the moment in which fear had instigated my flight did not seem more terrible than that wherein I put my design in execution appeared delightful. To leave my relations, my resources, while yet a child, in the midst of my apprenticeship, before I had learned enough of my business to obtain a subsistence to run on inevitable misery and danger to expose myself in that age of weakness and innocence to all the temptations of vice and despair to set out in search of errors misfortunes snares slavery and death to endure more intolerable evils than those i meant to shun was the picture i should have drawn the natural consequence of my hazardous enterprise how different was the idea i entertained of it the independence i seemed to possess was the sole object of my contemplation having obtained my liberty i thought everything attainable I entered with confidence on the vast theatre of the world, which my merit was to captivate. At every step I expected to find amusements, treasures, and adventures, friends ready to serve, and mistresses eager to please me. I had but to show myself, and the whole universe would be interested in my concerns. Not but I could have been content with something less. A charming society, with sufficient means, might have satisfied me. My moderation was such, that the sphere in which I proposed to shine was rather circumscribed but then it was to possess the very quintessence of enjoyment and myself the principal object a single castle for instance might have bounded my ambition could i have been the favourite of the lord and lady the daughter's lover the son's friend and protector of the neighbours i might have been tolerably content and sought no further. In expectation of this modest fortune, I passed a few days in the environs of the city, with some country people of my acquaintance, who received me with more kindness than I should have met with in town. They welcomed, lodged, and fed me cheerfully. I could be said to live on charity these favours were not conferred with a sufficient appearance of superiority to furnish out the idea i rambled about in this manner till i got to confignon in savoy at about 2 leagues distance from geneva the vicar was called monsieur de pontvert this name so famous in the history of the republic Caught my attention. I was curious to see what appearance the descendants of the gentlemen of the spoon exhibited. I went therefore to visit this Monsieur de Pontvert, and was received with great civility. He spoke of the heresy of Geneva, declaimed on the authority of Holy Mother Church and then invited me to dinner. I had little to object to arguments which had so desirable a conclusion, and was inclined to believe that priests who gave such excellent dinners might be as good as our ministers. Notwithstanding M. de Pontvert's pedigree, I certainly possessed most learning. But I rather sought to be a good companion than an expert theologian, and his frangie wine, which I thought delicious, argued so powerfully on his side, that I should have blushed at silencing so kind a host. I therefore yielded him the victory, or rather declined the contest anyone who had observed my precaution would certainly have pronounced me a dissembler though in fact i was only courteous flattery or rather condescension is not always a vice in young people tis oftener a virtue When treated with kindness, it is natural to feel an attachment for the person who confers the obligation. We do not acquiesce because we wish to deceive, but from dread of giving uneasiness, or because we wish to avoid the ingratitude of rendering evil for good. What interest had Monsieur de Pontvert in entertaining, treating with respect, and endeavoring to convince me? None but mine. My young heart told me this, and I was penetrated with gratitude and respect for the generous priest. I was sensible of my superiority but scorned to repay his hospitality by taking advantage of it. I had no conception of hypocrisy in this forbearance, or thought of changing my religion. Nay, so far was the idea from being familiar to me, that I looked on it with a degree of horror which seemed to exclude the possibility of such an event. I only wished to avoid giving offence to those I was sensible caressed me from that motive. I wished to cultivate their good opinion, and meantime leave them the hope of success by seeming less on my guard than I really was. My conduct in this particular resembled the coquetry of some very honest women who to obtain their wishes, without permitting or promising anything, sometimes encourage hopes they never mean to realize. Reason, piety, and love of order certainly demanded that instead of being encouraged in my folly, I should have been dissuaded from the ruin I was courting, and sent back to my family and this conduct any one that was actuated by genuine virtue would have pursued but it should be observed that though monsieur de pontvert was a religious man he was not a virtuous one but a bigot who knew no virtue except worshiping images and telling his beads in a word a kind of missionary who thought the height of merit consisted in writing libels against the ministers of Geneva. Far from wishing to send me back, he endeavoured to favour my escape, and put it out of my power to return, even had I been so disposed. It was a thousand to one, but he was sending me to perish with hunger or become a villain. But all this was foreign to his purpose. He saw a soul snatched from heresy, and restored to the bosom of the church. Whether I was an honest man or a knave was very immaterial, provided I went to mass this ridiculous mode of thinking is not peculiar to catholics it is the voice of every dogmatical persuasion where merit consists in belief and not in virtue you are called by the almighty said m de pontvert go to annecy where you will find a good and charitable lady whom the bounty of the king enables to turn souls from those errors she has happily renounced he spoke of a madame de Varence, a new convert to whom the priests contrived to send those wretches who were disposed to sell their faith and with these She was, in a manner, constrained to share a pension of two thousand francs, bestowed on her by the King of Sardinia. I felt myself extremely humiliated at being supposed to want the assistance of a good and charitable lady. I had no objection to be accommodated with everything I stood in need of. But did not wish to receive it on the footing of charity, and to owe this obligation to a devotee was still worse. Notwithstanding my scruples, the persuasions of Monsieur de Pontvert, the dread of perishing with hunger, the pleasures I promised myself from the journey and hope of obtaining some desirable situation, determined me. And I set out, though reluctantly, for Annecy. I could easily have reached it in a day, but being in no great haste to arrive there, it took me three. My head was filled with the ideas of adventures, and I approached every country seat I saw in my way, in expectation of having them realized. I had too much timidity to knock at the doors, or even enter if I saw them open, but I did what I dared, which was to sing under those windows that I thought had the most favorable appearance and was very much disconcerted to find I wasted my breath to no purpose, and that neither old nor young ladies were attracted by the melody of my voice, or the wit of my poetry, though some songs my companions had taught me I thought excellent, and that I sung them incomparably. At length I arrived at Annecy, and saw Madame de Varence. As this period of my life, in a great measure, determined my character, I could not resolve to pass it lightly over. I was in the middle of my sixteenth year, and, though I could not be called handsome, was well made for my height i had a good foot a well-turned leg and animated countenance a well-proportioned mouth black hair and eyebrows and my eyes though small and rather too far in my head sparkling with vivacity darted that innate fire which inflamed my blood unfortunately for me I knew nothing of all this, never having bestowed a single thought on my person till it was too late to be of any service to me. The timidity common to my age was heightened by a natural benevolence which made me dread the idea of giving pain. Though my mind had received some cultivation having seen nothing of the world i was an absolute stranger to polite address and my mental acquisitions so far from supplying this defect only served to increase my embarrassment by making me sensible of every deficiency depending little therefore on external appearances I had recourse to other expedients. I wrote a most elaborate letter, where, mingling all the flowers of rhetoric which I had borrowed from books with the phrases of an apprentice, I endeavored to strike the attention and insure the good-will of Madame de Varence. I enclosed Monsieur de Pontvert's letter in my own, and waited on the lady with a heart palpitating with fear and expectation it was palm sunday of the year seventeen hundred and twenty eight i was informed she was that moment gone to church i hasten after her overtake and speak to her the place is yet fresh in my memory how can it be otherwise often have i moistened it with my tears and covered it with kisses why cannot i enclose with gold the happy spot and render it the object of universal veneration whoever wishes to honour monuments of human salvation would only approach it on their knees it was a passage at the back of the house bordered on the left hand by a little rivulet which separated it from the garden and on the right by the courtyard wall at the end was a private door which opened into the church of the cordeliers madame de Varence was just passing this door but on hearing my voice instantly turned about what an effect did the sight of her produce i expected to see a devout forbidding old woman monsieur de pontvers pious and worthy lady could be no other in my conception instead of which i see a face beaming with charms fine blue eyes full of sweetness a complexion whose whiteness dazzled the sight the form of an enchanting neck nothing escaped the eager eye of the young proselyte for that instant i was hers a religion preached by such missionaries must lead to paradise." My letter was presented with a trembling hand. She took it with a smile, opened it, glanced an eye over Monsieur de Pontvers, and again returned to mine, which she read through and would have read again had not the footman that "'informed her that service was beginning. "'Child,' said she, in a voice which made every nerve vibrate, "'you are wandering about at an early age. "'It is really a pity.' "'And without waiting for an answer, added, "'Go to my house, bid them give you something for breakfast. "'After Mass I will speak to you.' End of section 10 Recording by Martin Giessen In Hazelmere, Surrey Section 11 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Martin Giessen. Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2, by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Anonymously Translated, Section 11. Louise Eléonore de Varence was of the noble and ancient family of La Tour de Pie, of Vevey, a city in the country of the Vaudois. She was married very young to a Monsieur de Varence, of the house of Loïse, eldest son of Monsieur de Villardin, of Lausanne. There were no children by this marriage, which was far from being a happy one. Some domestic uneasiness made Madame de Varence take the resolution of crossing the lake, and throwing herself at the feet of King Victor Amadet, who was then at Evian, thus abandoning her husband, family, and country, by a giddiness similar to mine, which precipitation she too has found sufficient time and reason to lament. The king, who was fond of appearing a zealous promoter of the Catholic faith, took her under his protection and complimented her with a pension of fifteen hundred livres of piedmont which was a considerable appointment for a prince who never had the character of being generous but finding his liberality made some conjecture he had an affection for the lady he sent her to annecy escorted by a detachment of his guards where, under the direction of Michel Gabriel de Bernex, titular bishop of Geneva, she abjured her former religion at the convent of the Visitation. I came to Annecy just six years after this event. Madame de Varence was then eight and twenty, being born with the century. Her beauty, consisting more in the expressive animation of the countenance than a set of features, was in its meridian. Her manner soothing and tender, an angelic smile played about her mouth which was small and delicate. She wore her hair which was of an ash colour and uncommonly beautiful with an air of negligence that made her appear still more interesting. She was short and rather thick for her height, though by no means disagreeably so. But there could not be a more lovely face, a finer neck or hands and arms more exquisitely formed her education had been derived from such a variety of sources that it formed an extraordinary assemblage like me she had lost her mother at her birth and had received instruction as it chanced to present itself she had learned something of her governess something of her father a little of her masters but copiously from her lovers, particularly Monsieur de Tavelle, who, possessing both taste and information, endeavoured to adorn with them the mind of her he loved. These various instructions, not being properly arranged, tended to impede each other and she did not acquire that degree of improvement her natural good sense was capable of receiving. She knew something of philosophy and physic, but not enough to eradicate the fondness she had imbibed from her father for empiricism and alchemy. She made elixirs, tinctures, balsams, pretended to secrets and prepared majesty, while quacks and pretenders profiting by her weakness destroyed her property among furnaces drugs and minerals diminishing those charms and accomplishments which might have been the delight of the most elegant circles but though these interested wretches took advantage of her ill-applied education to obscure her natural good sense her excellent heart retained its purity her amiable mildness sensibility for the unfortunate inexhaustible bounty and open cheerful frankness knew no variation even at the approach of old age, when attacked by various calamities, rendered more cutting by indigence, the serenity of her disposition preserved to the end of her life the pleasing gaiety of her happiest days. Her errors proceeded from an inexhaustible fund of activity which demanded perpetual employment. She found no satisfaction in the customary intrigues of her sex, but being formed for vast designs, sought the direction of important enterprises and discoveries. In her place, Madame de Longueville would have been a mere trifler. In Madame de Longueville's situation, she would have governed the state her talents did not accord with her fortune. What would have gained her distinction in a more elevated sphere became her ruin. In enterprises which suited her disposition, she arranged the plan in her imagination, which was ever carried of its utmost extent and the means she employed being proportioned rather to her ideas than abilities, she failed by the mismanagement of those upon whom she depended, and was ruined where another would scarce have been a loser. This active disposition, which involved her in so many difficulties, was at least productive of one benefit as it prevented her from passing the remainder of her life in the monastic asylum she had chosen which she had some thought of the simple and uniform life of a nun and the little cabals and gossipings of their parlour were not adapted to a mind vigorous and active which every day forming new systems had occasions for liberty to attempt their completion. The good Bishop of Bernex, with less wit than François de Sales, resembled him in many particulars, and Madame de Varence, whom he loved to call his daughter, and who was like Madame de Chantal in several respects might have increased the resemblance by retiring like her from the world, had she not been disgusted with the idle trifling of a convent. It was not want of zeal prevented this amiable woman from giving those proofs of devotion which might have been expected from a new convert, under the immediate direction of a prelate whatever might have influenced her to change her religion, she was certainly sincere in that she had embraced. She might find sufficient occasion to repent, having abjured her former faith, but no inclination to return to it. She not only died a good Catholic, but truly lived one. Nay, I dare affirm, and I think I have had the opportunity to read the secrets of her heart, that it was only her aversion to singularity that prevented her acting the devotee in public. In a word, her piety was too sincere to give way to any affectation of it. But this is not the place to enlarge on her principles. I shall find other occasions to speak of them. Let those who deny the existence of a sympathy of souls explain, if they know how, why the first glance, the first word of Madame de Varence inspired me, not only with a lively attachment, but with the most unbounded confidence which has since known no abatement say this was love which will at least appear doubtful to those who read the sequel of our attachment how could this passion be attended with sentiments which scarce ever accompany its commencement such as peace serenity security and confidence How, when making application to an amiable and polished woman, whose situation in life was so superior to mine, so far above any I had yet approached, on whom in a great measure depended my future fortune, by the degree of interest she might take in it, how, I say, with so many reasons to depress me, did I feel myself as free as much at my ease as if i had been perfectly secure of pleasing her why did i not experience a moment of embarrassment timidity or restraint naturally bashful easily confused having seen nothing of the world how could i the first time the first moment i beheld her adopt caressing language and a familiar tone, as readily as after ten years' intimacy had rendered these freedoms natural? Is it possible to possess love, I will not say without desires, for I certainly had them, but without inquietude, without jealousy? Can we avoid feeling an anxious wish, at least, to know whether our affection is returned? Yet such a question never entered my imagination. I should have soon have inquired, do I love myself? Nor did she ever express a greater degree of curiosity. There was certainly something extraordinary in my attachment to this charming woman, and it will be found in the sequel that some extravagances which cannot be foreseen attended it. What could be done for me was the present question, and in order to discuss the point with greater freedom she made me dine with her. This was the first meal in my life where I had experienced a want of appetite. And her woman, who waited, observed it was the first time she had seen a traveller of my age and appearance deficient in that particular. This remark, which did me no injury in the opinion of her mistress, fell hard on an overgrown clown who was my fellow-guest and devoured sufficient to have served at least six moderate feeders for me i was too much charmed to think of eating my heart began to imbibe a delicious sensation which engrossed my whole being and left no room for other objects madame de varance wished to hear the particulars of my little history All the vivacity I had lost during my servitude returned and assisted the recital. In proportion to the interest this excellent woman took in my story, did she lament the fate to which I had exposed myself. Compassion was painted on her features, and expressed by every action. She could not exhort me to return to Geneva, being too well aware that her words and actions were strictly scrutinized, and that such advice would be thought high treason against Catholicism. But she spoke so feelingly of the affliction I must give my father that it was easy to perceive she would have approved my returning to console him. Alas! she little thought how powerfully this pleaded against herself. The more eloquently persuasive she appeared, the less I could resolve to tear myself from her. I knew that returning to Geneva would be putting an insuperable barrier between us unless I repeated the expedient which had brought me here, and it was certainly better to preserve than expose myself to the danger of a relapse. Besides all this, my conduct was predetermined, I was resolved not to return. Madame de Varence, seeing her endeavours would be fruitless, became less explicit, and only added with an air of commiseration poor child thou must go where providence directs thee but one day thou wilt think of me i believe she had no conception at that time how fatally her prediction would be verified end of section eleven Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey. Section 12 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 By Jean-Jacques Rousseau Anonymously translated. Section twelve. The difficulty still remained how I was to gain a subsistence. I have already observed that I knew too little of engraving for that to furnish my resource, and had I been more expert, Savoy was too poor a country to give much encouragement to the arts. The above-mentioned glutton, who ate for us as well as himself, being obliged to pause in order to gain some relaxation from the fatigue of it, imparted a piece of advice, which according to him came express from heaven, though to judge by its effects it appeared to have been dictated from a direct contrary quarter this was that I should go to Turin, where in a hospital instituted for the instruction of catechumens I should find food both spiritual and temporal, be reconciled to the bosom of the church, and meet with some charitable Christians who would make it a point to procure me a situation that would turn to my advantage in regard to the expenses of the journey continued our adviser his grace my lord bishop will not be backward when once madame has proposed this holy work to offer his charitable donation and madame the baroness whose charity is so well known once more addressing himself to the continuation of his meal will certainly contribute i was by no means pleased with all these charities i said nothing but my heart was ready to burst with vexation madame de varance who did not seem to think so highly of this expedient as the projector pretended to do contented herself by saying one should endeavour to promote good actions, and that she would mention it to his lordship. But the meddling devil, who had some private interest in this affair, and questioned whether she would urge it to his satisfaction, took care to acquaint the almoners with my story, and so far influenced those good priests, that when madame de varance who disliked the journey on my account mentioned it to the bishop she found it so far concluded on that he immediately put into her hands the money designed for my little viaticum she dared not advance anything against it I was approaching an age when a woman like her could not, with any propriety, appear anxious to retain me. My departure being thus determined by those who undertook the management of my concerns, I had only to submit, and I did it without much repugnance though Turin was at a greater distance from Madame de Varence than Geneva, yet being the capital of the country I was now in, it seemed to have more connection with Annecy than a city under a different government and of a contrary religion. Besides, as I undertook this journey in obedience to her, I considered myself as living under her direction, which was more flattering than barely to continue in the neighbourhood. To sum up all, the idea of a long journey coincided with my insurmountable passion for rambling, which already began to demonstrate itself. To pass the mountains, to my eye, appeared delightful. How charming the reflection of elevating myself above my companions by the whole height of the Alps. To see the world is an almost irresistible temptation to a Genevan. Accordingly, I gave my consent. He who suggested the journey was to set off in two days with his wife. I was recommended to their care they were likewise made my purse-bearers which had been augmented by Madame de varance who not contented with these kindnesses added secretly a pecuniary reinforcement attended with the most ample instructions and we departed on the wednesday before easter the day following My father arrived at Annecy, accompanied by his friend, a Monsieur Rival, who was likewise a watchmaker. He was a man of sense and letters, who wrote better verses than Lamotte, and spoke almost as well. What is still more to his praise, he was a man of the strictest integrity but whose taste for literature only served to make one of his sons a comedian. Having traced me to the house of Madame de Varence, they contented themselves with lamenting like her my fate, instead of overtaking me, which, as they were on horseback and I on foot, they might have accomplished with the greatest ease my uncle bernard did the same thing he arrived at confignon received information that i was gone to annecy and immediately returned back to geneva thus my nearest relations seemed to have conspired with my adverse stars to consign me to misery and ruin By a similar negligence, my brother was so entirely lost that it was never known what was become of him. My father was not only a man of honour, but of the strictest probity, and endured with that magnanimity which frequently produces the most shining virtues. I may add he was a good father particularly to me whom he tenderly loved. But he likewise loved his pleasures, and since we had been separated other connections had weakened his paternal affections. He had married again at Nyon, and though his second wife was too old to expect children, she had relations. My father was united to another family surrounded by other objects and a variety of cares prevented my returning to his remembrance he was in the decline of life and had nothing to support the inconveniences of old age my mother's property devolved to me and my brother but during our absence the interest of it was enjoyed by my father I do not mean to infer that this consideration had an immediate effect on his conduct, but it had an imperceptible one, and prevented him from making use of that exertion to regain me which he would otherwise have employed. And this, I think, was the reason that, having traced me as far as Annecy, he stopped short, without proceeding to Chambéry. Where he was almost certain i should be found and likewise accounts for why on visiting him several times since my flight he always received me with great kindness but never made any efforts to retain me this conduct in a father whose affection and virtue i was so well convinced of has given birth to reflections on the regulation of my own conduct which have greatly contributed to preserve the integrity of my heart it has taught me this great lesson of morality perhaps the only one that can have any conspicuous influence on our actions that we should ever carefully avoid putting our interests in competition with our duty, or promise ourselves felicity from the misfortunes of others. Certain that in such circumstances, however sincere our love of virtue may be, sooner or later it will give way, and we shall imperceptibly become unjust and wicked, in fact, however upright in our intentions. This maxim, strongly imprinted on my mind, and reduced, though rather too late, to practice, has given my conduct an appearance of folly and whimsicality, not only in public, but still more among my acquaintances it has been said i affected originality and sought to act different from other people the truth is i neither endeavour to conform or be singular i desire only to act virtuously and avoid situations which by setting my interest in opposition to that of another person might inspire me with a secret though involuntary, wish to his disadvantage. Two years ago, my Lord marshal would have put my name in his will, which I took every method to prevent, assuring him I would not for the world know myself in the will of any one, much less in his. He gave up the idea but insisted in return that i should accept an annuity on his life this i consented to it will be said i find my account in the alteration perhaps i may but oh, my benefactor my father i am now sensible that should i have the misfortune to survive thee I should have everything to lose, nothing to gain. This, in my idea, is true philosophy, the surest bulwark of human rectitude. Every day do I receive fresh conviction of its profound solidity. I have endeavoured to recommend it in all my latter writings but the multitude read too superficially to have made the remark. If I survive my present undertaking, and am able to begin another, I mean, in a continuation of Émile, to give such a lively and marking example of this maxim as cannot fail to strike attention but i have made reflections enough for a traveller it is time to continue my journey it turned out more agreeable than i expected my clownish conductor was not so morose as he appeared to be he was a middle-aged man wore his black grizzly hair in a queue had a martial air a strong voice was tolerably cheerful, and to make up for not having been taught any trade, could turn his hand to every one. Having proposed to establish some kind of manufactory at Annecy, he had consulted Madame de Varence, who immediately gave into the project, and he was now going to Turin to lay the plan before the minister and get his approbation, for which journey he took care to be well rewarded. This droll had the art of ingratiating himself with the priests, whom he ever appeared eager to serve. He adopted a certain jargon which he had learned by frequenting their company, and thought himself a notable preacher. He could even repeat one passage from the Bible in Latin, and it answered his purpose as well as if he had known a thousand, for he repeated it a thousand times a day. He was seldom at a loss for money, when he knew what purse contained it, yet was rather artful than knavish and when dealing out in an affected tone his unmeaning discourses resembled peter the hermit preaching up the crusade with a sabre at his side madame sabran his wife was a tolerable good sort of woman more peaceable by day than by night as i slept in the same chamber i was frequently disturbed by her wakefulness and should have been more so had i comprehended the cause of it but i was in the chapter of dulness which left to nature the whole care of my instruction i went on gaily with my pious guide and his hopeful companion no sinister accident impeding our journey. I was in the happiest circumstances both of mind and body that I ever recollect having experienced, young, full of health and security, placing unbounded confidence in myself and others in that short but charming moment of human life whose expansive energy carries if i may so express myself our being to the utmost extent of our sensations embellishing all nature with an inexpressible charm flowing from the conscious and rising enjoyment of our existence End of section 12 Recording by Martin Giessen In Hazelmere, Surrey Section 13 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Martin Geeson confessions volumes one and two by jean-jacques rousseau anonymously translated section thirteen my pleasing inquietudes became less wandering i now had an object on which imagination could fix i looked on myself as the work the pupil the friend, almost the lover, of Madame de Varence. The obliging things she had said, the caresses she had bestowed on me, the tender interest she seemed to take in everything that concerned me, those charming looks which seemed replete with love because they so powerfully inspired it every consideration flattered my ideas during this journey and furnished the most delicious reveries which no doubt no fear of my future condition arose to embitter in sending me to turin i thought they engaged to find me an agreeable subsistence there Thus eased of every care I passed lightly on, while young desires, enchanting hopes, and brilliant prospects employed my mind. Each object that presented itself seemed to ensure my approaching felicity. I imagined that every house was filled with joyous festivity. The meadows resounded with sports and revelry, the rivers offered refreshing baths, delicious fish wantoned in these streams, and how delightful was it to ramble along the flowery banks. The trees were loaded with the choicest fruits, while their shade afforded the most charming and voluptuous retreats to happy lovers the mountains abounded with milk and cream peace and leisure simplicity and joy mingled with the charm of going i knew not whither and everything i saw carried to my heart some new cause for rapture the grandeur variety and real beauty of the scene in some measure rendered the charm reasonable in which vanity came in for its share to go so young to italy view such an extent of country and pursue the route of hannibal over the alps appeared a glory beyond my age add to all this our frequent and agreeable halts with a good appetite and plenty to satisfy it for in truth it was not worth while to be sparing at m Sabran's table what i ate could scarce be missed in the whole course of my life i cannot recollect an interval more perfectly exempt from care than the seven or eight days i was passing from annecy to turin as we were obliged to walk madame sabran's pace it rather appeared an agreeable jaunt than a fatiguing journey there still remains the most pleasing impressions of it on my mind and the idea of a pedestrian excursion particularly among the mountains has from this time seemed delightful it was only in my happiest days that I travelled on foot, and ever with the most unbounded satisfaction. Afterwards, occupied with business, and encumbered with baggage, I was forced to act the gentleman, and employ a carriage, where care, embarrassment, and restraint were sure to be my companions, and instead of being delighted with the journey, i only wished to arrive at the place of destination i was a long time at paris wishing to meet with two companions of similar dispositions who would each agree to appropriate fifty guineas of his property and a year of his time to making the tour of italy on foot with no other attendants than a young fellow to carry our necessaries i have met with many who seemed enchanted with the project but considered it only as a visionary scheme which served well enough to talk of without any design of putting it in execution one day speaking with enthusiasm of this project to diderot and grimm they gave in to the proposal with such warmth that i thought the matter concluded on but it only turned out a journey on paper, in which Grimm thought nothing so pleasing as making Diderot commit a number of impieties, and shutting me up in the inquisition for them instead of him. My regret at arriving so soon at Turin was compensated by the pleasure of viewing a large city and the hope of figuring there in a conspicuous character for my brain already began to be intoxicated with the fumes of ambition my present situation appeared infinitely above that of an apprentice and i was far from foreseeing how soon i should be much below it before i proceed i ought to offer an excuse or justification to the reader for the great number of unentertaining particulars i am necessitated to repeat in pursuance of the resolution i have formed to enter on this public exhibition of myself it is necessary that nothing should bear the appearance of obscurity or concealment I should be continually under the eye of the reader. He should be enabled to follow me in all the wanderings of my heart, through every intricacy of my adventures. He must find no void or chasm in my relation, nor lose sight of me an instant, lest he should find occasion to say, What was he doing at this time? and suspect me of not having dared to reveal the whole i shall give sufficient scope to malignity in what i say it is unnecessary i should furnish still more by my silence my money was all gone even that i had secretly received from madame de varance i had been so indiscreet as to divulge this secret and my conductors had taken care to profit by it madame sabran found means to deprive me of everything i had even to a ribbon embroidered with silver with which madame de varance had adorned the hilt of my sword this i regretted more than all the rest indeed the sword itself would have gone the same way had i been less obstinately bent on retaining it they had it is true supported me during the journey but left me nothing at the end of it and i arrived at turin without money clothes or linen being precisely in the situation to owe to my merit alone the whole honour of that fortune I was about to acquire. I took care in the first place to deliver the letters I was charged with, and was presently conducted to the hospital of the catechumens, to be instructed in that religion for which in return I was to receive subsistence. On entering I passed an iron-barred gate, which was immediately double-locked on me. This beginning was by no means calculated to give me a favorable opinion of my situation. I was then conducted to a large apartment, whose furniture consisted of a wooden altar at the farther end, on which was a large crucifix, and round it several indifferent chairs of the same materials. In this hall of audience were assembled four or five ill-looking banditti, my comrades in instruction who would rather have been taken for trusty servants of the devil than candidates for the kingdom of heaven two of these fellows were sclavonians but gave out they were african jews and as they assured me had run through spain and italy embracing the christian faith and being baptized wherever they thought it worth their labor Soon after they opened another iron gate, which divided a large balcony that overlooked a courtyard, and by this avenue entered our sister catechumens, who like me were going to be regenerated, not by baptism but a solemn abjuration. A viler set of idle, dirty abandoned harlots never disgraced any persuasion one among them however appeared pretty and interesting she might be about my own age perhaps a year or two older and had a pair of roguish eyes which frequently encountered mine this was enough to inspire me with the desire of becoming acquainted with her but she had been so strongly recommended to the care of the old governess of this respectable sisterhood and was so narrowly watched by the pious missionary who laboured for her conversion with more zeal than diligence that during the two months we remained together in this house where she had already been three I found it absolutely impossible to exchange a word with her. She must have been extremely stupid, though she had not the appearance of it, for never was a longer course of instruction. The holy man could never bring her to a state of mind fit for abjuration. Meantime she became weary of her cloister declaring that christian or not she would stay there no longer and they were obliged to take her at her word lest she should grow refractory and insist on departing as great a sinner as she came this hopeful community were assembled in honour of the newcomer, when our guides made us a short exhortation I was conjured to be obedient to the grace that heaven had bestowed on me. The rest were admonished to assist me with their prayers, and give me edification by their good example. Our virgins then retired to another apartment, and I was left to contemplate at leisure that wherein I found myself. The next morning we were again assembled for instruction. I now began to reflect, for the first time, on the step I was about to take, and the circumstances which had led me to it. I repeat, and shall perhaps repeat again, an assertion I have already advanced, and of whose truth I every day receive fresh conviction which is that if ever child received a reasonable and virtuous education it was myself born in a family of unexceptionable morals every lesson i received was replete with maxims of prudence and virtue my father though fond of gallantry not only possessed distinguished probity but much religion in the world he appeared a man of pleasure, in his family he was a Christian, and implanted early in my mind those sentiments he felt the force of. My three aunts were women of virtue and piety, the two eldest were professed devotees, and the third, who united all the graces of wit and good sense, was perhaps more truly religious than either, though with less ostentation. From the bosom of this amiable family I was transplanted to M. Lambercier's, a man dedicated to the ministry, who believed the doctrine he taught, and acted up to its precepts he and his sister matured by their instructions those principles of judicious piety i had already imbibed and the means employed by these worthy people were so well adapted to the effect they meant to produce that so far from being fatigued i scarce ever listened to their admonitions without finding myself sensibly affected and forming resolutions to live virtuously, from which, except in moments of forgetfulness, I seldom swerved. At my uncle's religion was far more tiresome, because they made it an employment. With my master I thought no more of it, though my sentiments continued the same. I had no companions to vitiate my morals. I became idle, careless, and obstinate, but my principles were not impaired. I possessed as much religion, therefore, as a child could be supposed capable of acquiring. Why should I now disguise my thoughts? I am persuaded I had more. In my childhood, I was not a child. I felt, I thought, as a man. As I advanced in years, I mingled with the ordinary class. In my infancy, I was distinguished from it. I shall doubtless incur ridicule by thus modestly holding myself up for a prodigy. I am content let those who find themselves disposed to it laugh their fill afterward let them find a child that at six years old is delighted interested affected with romances even to the shedding floods of tears i shall then feel my ridiculous vanity and acknowledge myself in an error thus when i said we should not converse with children on religion if we wished them ever to possess any when i asserted they were incapable of communion with the supreme being even in our confined degree i drew my conclusions from general observation i knew they were not applicable to particular instances Find J. J. Rousseau of six years old, converse with them on religious subjects at seven, and I will be answerable that the experiment will be attended with no danger. End of section thirteen. Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey. Section 14 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 by Jean Jacques Rousseau. Anonymously translated. Section 14 it is understood i believe that a child or even a man is likely to be most sincere while persevering in that religion in whose belief he was born and educated we frequently detract from seldom make any additions to it dogmatical faith is the effect of education in addition to this general principle which attached me to the religion of my forefathers i had that particular aversion our city entertains for catholicism which is represented there as the most monstrous idolatry and whose clergy are painted in the blackest colours this sentiment was so firmly imprinted on my mind that i never dared to look into their churches i could not bear to meet a priest in his surplice and never did i hear the bells of a procession sound without shuddering with horror these sensations soon wore off in great cities but frequently returned in country parishes which bore more similarity to the spot where i first experienced them meantime this dislike was singularly contrasted by the remembrance of those caresses which priests in the neighbourhood of geneva are fond of bestowing on the children of that city if the bells of the viaticum alarmed me the chiming for Mass or Vespers called me to a breakfast, a collation, to the pleasure of regaling on fresh butter, fruits, or milk. The good cheer of Monsieur de Pontvert had produced a considerable effect on me. My former abhorrence began to diminish, and looking on Popery through the medium of amusement and good living, i easily reconciled myself to the idea of enduring though i never entertained but a very transient and distant idea of making a solemn profession of it at this moment such a transaction appeared in all its horrors i shuddered at the engagement i had entered into and its inevitable consequences The future neophytes with which I was surrounded were not calculated to sustain my courage by their example, and I could not help considering the holy work I was about to perform as the action of a villain. Though young, I was sufficiently convinced that whatever religion might be the true one, I was about to sell mine and even should i chance to choose the best i lied to the holy ghost and merited the disdain of every good man the more i considered the more i despised myself and trembled at the fate which had led me into such a predicament as if my present situation had not been of my own seeking there were moments when these compunctions were so strong that had i found the door open but for an instant i should certainly have made my escape but this was impossible nor was the resolution of any long duration being combated by too many secret motives to stand any chance of gaining the victory my fixed determination not to return to geneva the shame that would attend it the difficulty of repassing the mountains at a distance from my country without friends and without resources everything concurred to make me consider my remorse of conscience as a too late repentance I affected to reproach myself for what I had done, to seek excuses for that I intended to do, and by aggravating the errors of the past, looked on the future as an inevitable consequence. I did not say, Nothing is yet done, and you may be innocent if you please, but I said, tremble at the crime thou hast committed which hath reduced thee to the necessity of filling up the measure of thine iniquities it required more resolution than was natural to my age to revoke those expectations which i had given them reason to entertain break those chains with which i was enthralled and resolutely declare i would continue in the religion of my forefathers whatever might be the consequence the affair was already too far advanced and in spite of all my efforts they would have made a point of bringing it to a conclusion the sophism which ruined me has had a similar effect on the greater part of mankind who lament the want of resolution when the opportunity for exercising it is over the practice of virtue is only difficult from our own negligence Were we always discreet we should seldom have occasion for any painful exertion of it we are captivated by desires we might readily surmount give into temptations that might easily be resisted, and insensibly get into embarrassing, perilous situations from which we cannot extricate ourselves but with the utmost difficulty. Intimidated by the effort, we fall into the abyss, saying to the Almighty, Why hast thou made us such weak creatures? but notwithstanding our vain pretexts he replies by our consciences i formed ye too weak to get out of the gulf because i gave ye sufficient strength not to have fallen into it i was not absolutely resolved to become a catholic but as it was not necessary to declare my intentions immediately i gradually accustomed myself to the idea hoping meantime that some unforeseen event would extricate me from my embarrassment in order to gain time i resolved to make the best defence i possibly could in favour of my own opinion but my vanity soon rendered this resolution unnecessary for on finding i frequently embarrassed those who had the care of my instruction i wished to heighten my triumph by giving them a complete overthrow i zealously pursued my plan not without the ridiculous hope of being able to convert my converters for i was simple enough to believe that could i convince them of their errors they would become Protestants. They did not find, therefore, that facility in the work which they had expected, as I differed both in regard to will and knowledge from the opinion they had entertained of me. Protestants, in general, are better instructed in the principles of their religion than Catholics. The reason is obvious. The doctrine of the former requires discussion, of the latter a blind submission. The Catholic must content himself with the decisions of others. The Protestant must learn to decide for himself. They were not ignorant of this, but neither my age nor appearance promised much difficulty to men so accustomed to disputation they knew likewise that i had not received my first communion nor the instructions which accompany it but on the other hand they had no idea of the information i received at m or that i had learned the history of the church and empire almost by heart at my father's and though since that time nearly forgot when warmed by the dispute, very unfortunately for these gentlemen, it again returned to my memory. A little old priest, but tolerably venerable, held the first conference, at which we were all convened. On the part of my comrades it was rather a catechism than a controversy and he found more pains in giving them instruction than answering their objections but when it came to my turn it was a different matter i stopped him at every article and did not spare a single remark that i thought would create a difficulty this rendered the conference long and extremely tiresome to the assistants My old priest talked a great deal, was very warm, frequently rambled from the subject, and extricated himself from difficulties by saying he was not sufficiently versed in the French language. The next day, lest my indiscreet objections should injure the minds of those who were better disposed, I was led into a separate chamber and put under the care of a younger priest, a fine speaker, that is, one who was fond of long perplexed sentences, and proud of his own abilities, if ever doctor was. I did not, however, suffer myself to be intimidated by his overbearing looks, and being sensible that I could maintain my ground, I combated his assertions, exposed his mistakes, and laid about me in the best manner I was able. He thought to silence me at once with St. Augustine, St. Gregory, and the rest of the fathers, but found, to his ineffable surprise, that I could handle these almost as dexterously as himself, not that I had ever read them. Or he either perhaps but i retained a number of passages taken from my le sueur and when he bore hard on me with one citation without standing to dispute i parried it with another which method embarrassed him extremely at length however he got the better of me for two very potent reasons In the first place he was of the strongest side. Young as I was, I thought it might be dangerous to drive him to extremities, for I plainly saw the old priest was neither satisfied with me nor my erudition. In the next place he had studied, I had not. This gave a degree of method to his arguments, which I could not follow and whenever he found himself pressed by an unforeseen objection, he put it off to the next conference, pretending I rambled from the question in dispute. Sometimes he even rejected all my quotations, maintaining they were false, and offering to fetch the book defied me to find them. He knew he ran very little risk, and that with all my borrowed learning I was not sufficiently accustomed to books, and too poor a Latinist to find a passage in a large volume, had I been ever so well assured it was there. I even suspected him of having been guilty of a perfidy with which he accused our ministers and that he fabricated passages sometimes in order to evade an objection that incommoded him meanwhile the hospital became every day more disagreeable to me and seeing but one way to get out of it i endeavoured to hasten my abjuration, with as much eagerness as i had hitherto sought to retard it The two Africans had been baptised with great ceremony. They were habited in white from head to foot to signify the purity of their regenerated souls. My turn came a month after, for all this time was thought necessary by my directors, that they might have the honour of a difficult conversion. And every dogma of their faith was recapitulated in order to triumph the more completely over my new docility. End of section fourteen. Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey. Section fifteen of Confessions, Volumes one and two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. Confessions, Volumes one and two, by Jean Jacques Rousseau. Anonymously translated. Section fifteen. At length sufficiently instructed and disposed to the will of my masters, I was led in procession to the Metropolitan Church of St. John, to make a solemn abjuration, and undergo a ceremony made use of on these occasions, which, though not baptism, is very similar and serves to persuade the people that protestants are not christians i was clothed in a kind of grey robe decorated with white brandenburgs two men one behind the other before me carried copper basins which they kept striking with a key and in which those who were charitably disposed put their arms according as they found themselves influenced by religion or good-will for the new convert in a word nothing of catholic pageantry was omitted that could render the solemnity edifying to the populace or humiliating to me the white dress might have been serviceable but as i had not the honour to be either moor or jew they did not think fit to compliment me with it. The affair did not end here. I must now go to the inquisition to be absolved from the dreadful sin of heresy, and return to the bosom of the church with the same ceremony to which Henry IV was subjected by his ambassador the air and manner of the right reverend father-inquisitor was by no means calculated to dissipate the secret horror that seized my spirits on entering this holy mansion after several questions relative to my faith situation and family he asked me bluntly if my mother was damned terror repressed the first gust of indignation this gave me time to recollect myself and i answered i hope not for god might have enlightened her last moments the monk made no reply but his silence was attended with a look by no means expressive of approbation all these ceremonies ended the very moment i flattered myself i should be plentifully provided for they exhorted me to continue a good christian and live in obedience to the grace i had received then wishing me good fortune with rather more than twenty francs of small money in my pocket the produce of the above-mentioned collection turned me out shut the door on me and i saw no more of them thus in a moment all my flattering expectations were at an end and nothing remained from my interested conversion but the remembrance of having been made both a dupe and an apostate it is easy to imagine what a sudden revolution was produced in my ideas, when every brilliant expectation of making a fortune terminated by seeing myself plunged into the completest misery. In the morning I was deliberating what palace I should inhabit. Before night, I was reduced to seek my lodging in the street. It may be supposed that I gave myself up to the most violent transports of despair, rendered more bitter by a consciousness that my own folly had reduced me to these extremities. But the truth is, I experienced none of these disagreeable sensations. I had passed two months in absolute confinement. This was new to me. I was now emancipated, and the sentiment I felt most forcibly was joy at my recovered liberty. After a slavery which had appeared tedious, I was again master of my time and actions, in a great city abundant in resources, crowded with people of fortune, to whom my merits and talents could not fail to recommend me. I had sufficient time before me to expect this good fortune, for my twenty livres seemed an inexhaustible treasure which I might dispose of without rendering an account of to any one. It was the first time I had found myself so rich, and far from giving way to melancholy reflections, I only adopted other hopes, in which self-love was by no means a loser. Never did I feel so great a degree of confidence and security. I looked on my fortune as already made and was pleased to think I should have no one but myself to thank for the acquisition of it. The first thing I did was to satisfy my curiosity by rambling all over the city, and I seemed to consider it as a confirmation of my liberty. I went to see the soldiers mount guard, and was delighted with their military accoutrement. I followed processions and was pleased with the solemn music of the priests i next went to see the king's palace which i approached with awe but seeing others enter i followed their example and no one prevented me perhaps i owed this favour to the small parcel i carried under my arm be that as it may I conceived a high opinion of my consequence from this circumstance, and already thought myself an inhabitant there. The weather was hot. I had walked about till I was both fatigued and hungry. Wishing for some refreshment, I went into a milk-house. They brought me some cream-cheese curds and whey and two slices of that excellent piedmont bread which i prefer to any other and for five or six sous i had one of the most delicious meals i ever recollect to have made it was time to seek a lodging as i already knew enough of the piedmontese language to make myself understood this was a work of no great difficulty and i had so much prudence that i wished to adapt it rather to the state of my purse than to the bent of my inclinations in the course of my inquiries i was informed that a soldier's wife in poe street furnished lodgings to servants out of place at only one sou a night and finding one of her poor beds disengaged i took possession of it she was young and newly married, though she already had five or six children. Mother, children, and lodgers all slept in the same chamber, and it continued thus while I remained there. She was good-natured, swore like a carman, and wore neither cap nor handkerchief, but she had a gentle heart was officious, and to me both kind and serviceable. For several days I gave myself up to the pleasures of independence and curiosity. I continued wandering about the city and its environs, examining every object that seemed curious or new, and indeed most things had that appearance to a young novice, I never omitted visiting the court, and assisted regularly every morning at the King's Mass. I thought it a great honour to be in the same chapel with this Prince and his retinue. But my passion for music, which now began to make its appearance, was a greater incentive than the splendour of the court, which, soon seen and always the same, presently lost its attraction. The King of Sardinia had at that time the best music in Europe. Sommi, Desjardins, and the Bizzuzzi shone there alternately. All these were not necessary to fascinate a youth whom the sound of the most simple instrument, provided it was just, transported with joy magnificence only produced a stupid admiration. Without any violent desire to partake of it, my thoughts were principally employed in observing whether any young princess was present that merited my homage, and from whom I could make the heroine of a romance. Meantime I was on the point of beginning one. In a less elevated sphere, it is true, but where could I have brought it to a conclusion I should have found pleasures a thousand times more delicious? Though I lived with the strictest economy, my purse insensibly grew lighter. This economy was, however, less the effect of prudence than that love of simplicity which even to this day the use of the most expensive tables has not been able to vitiate nothing in my idea either at that time or since could exceed a rustic repast give me milk vegetables eggs and brown bread with tolerable wine and i shall always think myself sumptuously regaled a good appetite will furnish out the rest, if the maitre d'hotel, with a number of unnecessary footmen, do not satiate me with their important attentions. Five or six sous would then procure me a more agreeable meal than as many livres would have done since. I was abstemious, therefore, for want of a temptation to be otherwise though i do not know but i am wrong to call this abstinence for with my pears new cheese bread and some glasses of montferrat wine which you might have cut with a knife i was the greatest of epicures notwithstanding my expenses were very moderate it was possible to see the end of twenty livres I was every day more convinced of this, and spite of the giddiness of youth, my apprehensions for the future amounted almost to terror. All my castles in the air were vanished, and I became sensible of the necessity of seeking some occupation that would procure me a subsistence even this was a work of difficulty. I thought of my engraving, but knew too little of it to be employed as a journeyman, nor do masters abound in Turin. I resolved, therefore, till something better presented itself, to go from shop to shop, offering to engrave ciphers or coats of arms on pieces of plate, etc., and hoped to get employment by working at a low price, or taking what they chose to give me. Even this expedient did not answer my expectations. Almost all my applications were ineffectual. The little I procured, being hardly sufficient to produce a few scanty meals. End of section 15 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey Section 16 of Confessions, Volumes 1 and 2 this LibriVox recording is in the Public Domain. Recording by Martin Gieson Confessions Volumes 1 and 2 by Jean-Jacques Rousseau Anonymously Translated Section 16 Walking one morning, pretty early, in the Contra Nova, I saw a young tradeswoman behind a counter, whose looks were so charmingly attractive, that notwithstanding my timidity with the ladies, I entered the shop without hesitation, offered my services as usual, and had the happiness to have it accepted. She made me sit down and recite my little history, pitied my forlorn situation, bade me be cheerful and endeavoured to make me so, by an assurance that every good Christian would give me assistance. Then while she had occasion, she went upstairs and fetched me something for breakfast. This seemed a promising beginning, nor was what followed less flattering. She was satisfied with my work, and when I had a little recovered myself, still more with my discourse. She was rather elegantly dressed, and notwithstanding her gentle looks, this appearance of gaiety had disconcerted me. But her good nature, the compassionate tone of her voice, with her gentle and caressing manner, soon set me at ease with myself i saw my endeavours to please were crowned with success and this assurance made me succeed the more though an italian and too pretty to be entirely devoid of coquetry she had so much modesty and i so great a share of timidity that our adventure was not likely to be brought to a very speedy conclusion nor did they give us time to make any good of it i cannot recall the few short moments i passed with this lovely woman without being sensible of an inexpressible charm and can yet say it was there i tasted in their utmost perfection the most delightful as well as the purest pleasures of love she was a lively pleasing brunette and the good nature that was painted on her lovely face rendered her vivacity more interesting she was called madame Basile. her husband who was considerably older than herself consigned her during his absence to the care of a clerk too disagreeable to be thought dangerous but who notwithstanding had pretensions that he seldom showed any signs of except of ill-humours a good share of which he bestowed on me though i was pleased to hear him play the flute on which he was a tolerable musician this second aegistus was sure to grumble whenever he saw me go into his mistress's apartment treating me with a degree of disdain which she took care to repay him with interest, seeming pleased to caress me in his presence, on purpose to torment him. This kind of revenge, though perfectly to my taste, would have been still more charming in a -a tete-a-tete, but she did not proceed so far at least there was a difference in the expression of her kindness whether she thought me too young that it was my place to make advances or that she was seriously resolved to be virtuous she had at such times a kind of reserve which though not absolutely discouraging kept my passion within bounds I did not feel the same real and tender respect for her as I did for Madame de Varence. I was embarrassed, agitated, feared to look, and hardly dared to breathe in her presence. Yet to have left her would have been worse than death. How fondly did my eyes devour whatever they could gaze on without being perceived. The flowers on her gown the point of her pretty foot the interval of a round white arm that appeared between her glove and ruffle the least part of her neck each object increased the force of all the rest and added to the infatuation gazing thus on what was to be seen and even more than was to be seen My sight became confused, my chest seemed contracted, respiration was every moment more painful. I had the utmost difficulty to hide my agitation, to prevent my sighs from being heard, and this difficulty was increased by the silence in which we were frequently plunged happily madame basile busy at her work saw nothing of all this or seemed not to see it yet i sometimes observed a kind of sympathy especially at the frequent rising of her handkerchief and this dangerous sight almost mastered every effort but when on the point of giving way to my transports She spoke a few words to me, with an air of tranquillity, and in an instant the agitation subsided. I saw her several times in this manner, without a word, a gesture, or even a look too expressive, making the least intelligence between us. The situation was both my torment and delight for hardly in the simplicity of my heart could i imagine the cause of my uneasiness i should suppose these tete-a-tete could not be displeasing to her at least she sought frequent occasions to renew them this was a very disinterested labour certainly as appeared by the use she made, or ever suffered me to make of them. Being one day wearied with the clerk's discourse, she had retired to her chamber. I made haste to finish what I had to do in the back shop, and followed her. The door was half open, and I entered without being perceived she was embroidering near a window on the opposite side of the room she could not see me and the carts in the streets made too much noise for me to be heard she was always well dressed but this day her attire bordered on coquetry her attitude was graceful her head leaning gently forward discovered a small circle of her neck. Her hair, elegantly dressed, was ornamented with flowers. Her figure was universally charming, and I had an uninterrupted opportunity to admire it. I was absolutely in a state of ecstasy, and involuntarily sinking on my knees I passionately extended my arms towards her, certain she could not hear, and having no conception that she could see me. But there was a chimney glass at the end of the room that betrayed all my proceedings. I am ignorant what effect this transport produced on her. She did not speak. She did not look at me but partly turning her head, with the movement of her finger only, she pointed to the mat that was at her feet. To start up with an articulate cry of joy, and occupy the place she had indicated, was the work of a moment. But it will hardly be believed I dared attempt no more, not even to speak raise my eyes to hers or rest an instant on her knees though in an attitude which seemed to render such a support necessary i was dumb immovable but far enough from a state of tranquillity agitation joy gratitude ardent indefinite wishes restrained by the fear of giving displeasure which my unpractised heart too much dreaded were sufficiently discernible she neither appeared more tranquil nor less intimidated than myself uneasy at my present situation confounded at having brought me there beginning to tremble for the effects of a sign which she had made, without reflecting on the consequences, neither giving encouragement nor expressing disapprobation. With her eyes fixed on her work, she endeavoured to appear unconscious of everything that passed. But all my stupidity could not hinder me from concluding that she partook of my embarrassment, perhaps my transports, and was only hindered by a bashfulness like mine, without even that supposition giving me power to surmount it. Five or six years older than myself, every advance, according to my idea, should have been made by her, and since she did nothing to encourage mine, I concluded they would offend her. Even at this time I am inclined to believe I thought right. She certainly had wit enough to perceive that a novice like me had occasion not only for encouragement, but instruction i am ignorant how this animated though dumb scene would have ended or how long i should have continued immovable in this ridiculous though delicious situation had we not been interrupted in the height of my agitation i heard the kitchen door open which joined Madame basile's chamber who being alarmed said with a quick voice and action get up here's rosina rising hastily i seized one of her hands which she held out to me and gave it two eager kisses at the second i felt this charming hand press gently on my lips never in my life did i enjoy so sweet a moment but the occasion I had lost returned no more, this being the conclusion of our amours. This may be the reason why her image yet remains imprinted on my heart in such charming colours, which have even acquired fresh lustre since I became acquainted with the world and women had she been mistress of the least degree of experience she would have taken other measures to animate so youthful a lover but if her heart was weak it was virtuous and only suffered itself to be borne away by a powerful though involuntary inclination this was apparently her first infidelity and i should perhaps have found more difficulty in vanquishing her scruples than my own but without proceeding so far i experienced in her company the most inexpressible delights never did i taste with any other woman pleasures equal to those two minutes which i passed at the feet of madame Bazile, Without even daring to touch her gown, I am convinced no satisfaction can be compared to that we feel with a virtuous woman we esteem. All is transport. A sign with the finger, a hand lightly pressed against my lips, were the only favours I ever received from Madame Basile, yet the bare remembrance of these trifling condescensions continues to transport me it was in vain i watched the following two days for another tete-a-tete it was impossible to find an opportunity nor could i perceive on her part any desire to forward it her behaviour was not colder but more distant than usual and i believe she avoided my looks for fear of not being able sufficiently to govern her own the cursed clerk was more vexatious than ever he even became a wit telling me with a satirical sneer that i should unquestionably make my way among the ladies I trembled lest I should have been guilty of some indiscretion, and looking at myself as already engaged in an intrigue, endeavoured to cover with an air of mystery an inclination which hitherto certainly had no great need of it. This made me more circumspect in my choice of opportunities and by resolving only to seize such as should be absolutely free from the danger of a surprise, I met none. Another romantic folly, which I could never overcome, and which joined to my natural timidity, tended directly to contradict the clerk's predictions, is I always loved too sincerely too perfectly i may say to find happiness easily attainable never were passions at the same time more lively and pure than mine never was love more tender more true or more disinterested freely would i have sacrificed my own happiness to that of the object of my affection her reputation was dearer than my life and i could promise myself no happiness for which i would have exposed her peace of mind for a moment this disposition has ever made me employ so much care use so many precautions such secrecy in my adventures that all of them have failed in a word my want of success with the women has ever proceeded from having loved them too well end of section 16 recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey